0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is James Hanaham, whose novels include God Says No and Delicious Foods, which won the Penn Faulkner Award for fiction. Delicious Foods tells the story of mother and son Darlene and Eddie. When Darlene is widowed early in the book, she turns to drugs and her son is left to fend for himself. While out on the streets, Darlene is lured with false promises of a good job on a farm, but instead, she discovers, she becomes slave labor, addicted to crack, and unable to communicate with her son. We began the interview discussing how Hanaham alighted on the plot, particularly the element of Darlene being enslaved and kept addicted to crack.
1: Uh, well, sadly, there is a basis in nonfiction. I was reading a book called uh, Nobodies by a guy named John Bowe. The, the book is a, a, a series of accounts of labor abuse around the world, actually. So each chapter deals with a different sort of neo-slavery kind of situation in the modern world. And uh, in one of the chapters, there's the story of a woman named Joyce Grant, who was, for all intents and purposes, a black woman who was a slave in Florida in 1992. This set off a lot of different sort of fireworks in my head about that story. Like, I mean, you know, the main question is like, okay, the same thing is happening to the same kind of people in the same place. And, you know, it feels as if, you know, something's wrong with time more than anything else because we think, you know, that, chattel slavery is over. We think that slavery is gone. We think, you know, that I've had a lot of conversations with people in which the discussion of slavery is just about chattel slavery of the antebellum South. And it seemed to me that, you know, this was a way of bringing into the present something that people believe has become a thing of the past.
0: The way you structure, you begin at the end, and we learn things about the character. We learn so the main character, Darlene, and her son, Eddie, are basically the center point of the book, and we learn that Eddie has escaped from somewhere and has lost his hands and gone from Louisiana to Minnesota, and that we know from his relationship with his aunt that his his mom is an addict and has been forsaken, basically, by his aunt. But then slowly we learn about how they get to this situation that you show us in the beginning. Tell me about the structure. Did you write it in this order?
1: <laughs> well, no, but I didn't write it linearly either. What happened was when I heard about the story of Joyce Grant, one of the first things I thought was, well, you know, this this does re- something really weird with time for me. Just, you know, as a story, I'm like, well, what century are we in? And is there something... You know eternal about the desire for you know one group to subjugate another and make them work and you know work for them for free, <laughs> and so I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to do something weird with time in order to recreate a little bit that sense of you know unsettledness in the reader that I was feeling when I heard about this story so i I set about writing it out of order in a way. That would help you understand different aspects of the story without needing it to be linear right so so the book moves forward in terms of information a lot more than it does in terms of time so like there are hopefully anyway the way that it's supposed to work is that like each chapter provides another kind of layer of information about about the story and what you know what led up to the story, but it doesn't go from like in a chronological kind of way.
0: Well, for me, I think one of my favorite and most interesting aspects, not that it's beautiful, is Darlene's guilt. So we, we learn about Darlene, that she went to college and fell madly in love with Nat, and they had this good life. They built a business, and he got killed by a group of white thugs, brutally. And her guilt about that because he was going out to get her Tylenol was really the trajectory of her life where she went from this healthy, happy person to an addict and basically just gave up on her her whole life. And I just wanted to talk to you about this idea of guilt and how, how could she have lived any other way and in these situations it seems like guilt kills you.
1: Well, I mean, it can. I don't think everyone experiences that in the same way. I mean, a lot of it has to do with, well, what are your reactions to horrible things that happen in your life? You know, can you somehow get through them? And what do you do in order to get through them? You know, drugs are not always the best way of dealing with your problems. I mean, I can see why people who've been through really horrible things would want to escape reality, at least for a little while. And then, you know, if escaping from reality seems like a real solution, and if you have, like, all of the factors in your background that would move you into the direction of becoming addicted, um, be they environmental or genetic or, or what have you, it can just kind of snowball and get out of control, and, you know, then you find yourself much later. An addict.
0: If I was sent to some farm that I could never leave and living in a chicken coop and made to work and punished for my lack of speed picking up watermelons, crack would seem like an okay idea.
1: Well, I mean, that's putting the card before the hearse in terms of the narrative, because, you know, Darlene's addicted before any of that happens. One, one of the ways that I was trying to explain how this could happen in the first place, she's fallen so far and become so desperate that, like, she's lost the ability to kind of judge whether this is a good idea or not. It just seems really, the way it's presented to her, and this is the way that apparently they do it, you know, they convince you, the people who are about to take you uh, off to whatever farm and exploit you, they convince you that it's, a great, it's just a great job and they're going to give you a competitive wage and, you know, they may show you pictures of, of a place that is really nothing to do with the place you end up and i suppose if you're if you're on drugs like you're not thinking straight in the first place you know you may really want to change your life you know back to what it was before you became an addict um and perhaps they're really playing on that you know they're they're taking advantage of the fact that maybe you you do have a lot of guilt you know just about being in that situation and you know you've been trying to get out of it and so If they show you this wonderful, you know, possibility, you might just leap at it if you're, you know, if you're not thinking and you're desperate enough. And then, of course, it becomes a much worse nightmare than than you would have expected.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is James Hanahan, author of the novel Delicious Foods, which just won a Penn Faulkner Award for fiction. One of the things that I found really interesting in in talking about Darlene, so basically these people with a van come and, and promise her this great apartment and a good job, and she goes with them, but she is at this point in her life, and I don't think she ever got out of it, where she needed some exterior conditions to live by. She didn't have control over her life. She needed something from the outside to come, And it sort of proved it in the end. I don't know if she had some kind of a Stockholm syndrome, but when there was the opportunity to leave, she didn't take it. I mean, things got better for her, but she didn't completely leave.
1: I'm not exactly sure why Darlene decided not to leave. I think there are a couple of reasons, but I feel like I had, as I was writing it, I thought of three different reasons why she wouldn't leave. And maybe none of those three was as strong as the three of them together, but there is this sense of, you know, well she's well she's addicted to crack and that's really what she wants. She doesn't that's the thing that she really doesn't want to change about her situation, like she can still do drugs and nobody can interfere with it. She's also involved with Sextus, who is the owner of the farm in some way. I'm not sure what that relationship is. It's it's just never made clear whether it's about power or sexual attraction or something else. <laughs> it's just a messed up situation. She also is kind of invested in the idea that she can turn this farm into the thing that she wanted it to be when she was first abducted by essentially taking it over. That's the, the section I kind of refer to as the uh, the Benito Serino section, because I was sort of playing on Benito Serino in order to make some point about power.
0: Well, one of the things that, you know, talking about evil that is, was interesting to me is how impotent people who want to help you and be some kind of savior, or at least right the wrongs, can be. And what I mean by that is Nat was killed horribly. And all these organizations are never really named, but people came to help for maybe a year. They were outside Mm -hmm. lawyers and people from Mm -hmm. the north who came to try to help, to try to prosecute, to try to right a wrong. And Mm -hmm. they can't and they go away. And I think that happens so much is that this injustice happens and it's happening today all the time on the streets Mm -hmm. of our country. So much brutality, so many black lives lost and people come and help. But it's like, there's a limit.
1: Well, I mean, there's obstruction. There isn't, I mean, it's not just that there's a limit, right? Because if people were cooperating, a lot of these things would would actually get prosecuted. If anybody was working to find the evidence, you know, in in the case of, in Nat's case, like nobody really wanted to solve the case because they were essentially closing ranks Right. There's this community that is basically saying, I mean, Nat was was trying was a community organizer. He was trying to register people to vote. He was trying to channel the anger of, you know, the mostly suppressed anger of a lot of his uh, neighbors and and friends who were, you know, gathering at this uh, grocery store. And when, you know, the the white supremacist power structure got wind of it, they um, they essentially had him assassinated. And then you know nobody you know nobody on his side was in power. you know they managed to to cover it up i mean this is this is like kind of thing that's happened so many times it's like it's absurd, and of course, you know it's not limited to the south, obviously because you know as as we've seen in the last few years, more strikingly, but not you know more frequently it's it's become more prominent in the media, let's say. So we're seeing all this before our eyes a lot more. But the fact of, of the matter is that it's been going on for a long time in the same way. And that's one of those other things about time that I was trying to mine a little bit with the with the, uh, the story. Because there are so many ways in which there's a lot that hasn't changed. And there are, you know, fundamental things that if they don't change, keep a lot of other things from not changing.
0: For me, there was something in your book on page 10 that sort of reminded me of of time and history. And he wrote, um, everybody black knows how to react to a tragedy. Just bring out a wheelbarrow full of the same old anger, dump it all over the usual frustration and water it with somebody odd all of which Bethella did. She's the aunt. Then quietly set some globs of genuine awe in a circle around the mixture, but don't call too much attention to that. Mention the Holy Spirit whenever possible. Bethella shook her head and spoke hazily of the Lord's plan. Can you just tell me about writing this?
1: As soon as you begin to even scratch the surface of Black history, not actually not even just in the United States, but like around the world, you start hitting all of this extremely Gothic stuff, you know? And it's, it's so extreme sometimes that you're like, you know, if I put this in a book, nobody's going to believe it. One of my favorite books to kind of go back to and ponder is... Uh, We charge genocide, which is the case that was brought to the UN, defining the relationship of Black Americans uh, and White Americans in this country as a genocide. And a lot of book consists of little stories. Little, I mean, it's sort of, um, it's sort of, you know, how like the beginning of uh, Claudia Rankine's book *Citizen*, which is an an amazing book. There's kind of a litany of. microaggressions. Everybody's talking about microaggressions. Well, We Charge Genocide as like macroaggressions. These are like some of the really bad things that have happened, sometimes to quite prominent members of, of society, like, you know, musicians and actors, people who are well-known, get treated like shit, essentially. Um, and there's just a ton of them. My point is, there is just, there's just so much injustice that you, you, you can't even, you can't get away from it. And so you're charged with dealing with it in ways that are also a little bit rote. I mean, it's not that you're, you don't feel it, but it's just like, oh, here we go again.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is James Hanahan, author of the novel Delicious Foods, which just won a Penn Faulkner Award for fiction. I, I loved the sections in the field where they, and it seemed like they had to discover it when Tuck arrived, but when they found music. Those were my favorite, some of my favorite moments because I, I could viscerally feel sort of the relief in the otherworldly state you can get in when you sing. And, and it definitely reminded me of, of sort of maybe some of the history of, of Black music in America.
1: I thought there was something romantic in the fact that he is a blues musician, and he's kind of losing his audience and It seems like you know the the genre is a little moribund to him anyway and he's a little bit given up, but there's still there's still something about his identity and his character that makes him unable to put it down and I guess that scene, which came kind of late actually, I feel like that was a relatively late addition to to in the editing process of that that scene it would it still was a, a source of coping. It was a it was a coping mechanism for him still, even after it seemed as if he'd given up. Like it was still something he was doing. Whether it uh benefited him in a financial way or not.
0: Do you think that it it benefited the people in the field to just find music?
1: Sure. In in whatever way I mean that's isn't that part of what art can do is like to lessen your pain in some way. I mean, especially music, singing, that kind of thing. I, I would think that it's a way of passing the time and acknowledging your feelings and creating a kind of social experience, a shared experience. Acknowledging shared pain, I think, is a big part of you know what what is happening in that that scene anyway. Which is why they want to shut it down. You know, you can't have oppressed people like banding together or anything.
0: Can you talk a, a little bit about the, your decision to make the voice of crack, Scotty, be the narrator for Darlene's sections?
1: Well, it wasn't part of the original plan, but I started out writing the scene that became the first chapter in the voice that became the voice of crack. Because I thought that Darlene was going to be a little bit more like from, from a socioeconomic demographic that was closer to that voice. And then I changed that idea, but I had still been writing this voice and really enjoying writing that voice. So I had to do this thing that I sometimes do where I had to ask myself, well, if it's not really her inner voice, well, who is it? Who is speaking? Or is there a way to make make it so that I can still write this voice and have it speak for her? I mean, one of the things that occurred to me was that it could be the voice of the drug. It was a decision that made me think, well, nobody's going to like that. But it also felt like I was breaking a rule of some kind, and I like to feel that I'm breaking a rule here and there. And I thought that I could not only that it, that I could probably pull it off, um, and that it would be enjoyable to pull it off, but that the book really wanted me to do that because the, a lot of the material is just so dire: addiction, human trafficking, discrimination, murder. It's just there's just so much mayhem. I mean, a lot of the book literally takes place in the dark. You know, one of my early readers was like, your book is so dark. And I was like, well, in a lot of different ways, I think it's dark. Um, and so um, Scotty really provided a way of infusing the whole thing with a little bit of sick humor. And that helped me to get through the writing of the book itself, too.
0: Tell me about some of your literary influences. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you as a
1: writer? Yes, I think I, I can do that. I was looking around for something like this, and I think I came up with, it's this strange passage from John Cheever, of all people, in an otherwise not-that-great book, Bullet Park. There's this account of what I would refer to as radical tenderness. My sudden infatuation could be put down as immature, but the truth of the matter is that I frequently fall suddenly in love with men, women, children, and dogs. These attachments are unpredictable, ardent, and numerous. Um, And there's an example of each demographic, but I was going to read the one that's about dogs, although I'm not really a dog person. As for dogs, I will also confine myself to a single example. In the spring, I went out to Connecticut for a weekend with the Powerses. after a lunch on Saturday. We decided to climb what they called a mountain. It was, in fact, a hill. They had a dirty old collie named Francie who came along. Near the summit, there was a steep rock face that was too much for Francie, and I picked her up in my arms and carried her to the top. She stayed at my side for the rest of the climb or walk, and when we returned, I carried her down the steep stretch. While we had cocktails, Francie stayed at my side, and I roughed the fur on her neck. I was just as pleased with her company, I think, as she was with mine. When I went upstairs to change, Francie came along and lay on the floor. I went to bed at about midnight, and just as I was about to close the bedroom door, Francie came along the hall and joined me. She slept on my bed. Francie and I were inseparable on Sunday. She followed me ever I went, and I talked with her, fed her crackers, and roughed and caressed her back. When it was time for me to leave on Sunday, Francie, while I was saying goodbye, streaked across the driveway and got into my car. I was flattered, of course, but flattery is some part of susceptibility— and all the way home, I thought tenderly of the old dog, as if I had left a love.
0: And what is it about that that moves you?
1: I mean, I think the the cumulative effect of it is quite, it's sort of funny. It also suggests something about, I think, everyone's inner life that they never particularly uh, express. You know, this this idea of, you know, attractions that are not, sexual attractions and they're not actually love affairs but they have the tenor of love affairs and I feel like that's a, a way in which people can relate to the world. I mean not just dogs, babies, but like, you know, maybe there's an object even. I mean it just felt sort of true to me and it's stuck It stuck with me ever since. In the, there's an earlier section in which he's talking about men that I think is a, a way of sort of dealing with queerness at the same time as he's talking about this relationship to the world and describing this this phenomenon as a kind of I don't know polymorphous attraction uh, field or something, you know, it's just like describing the the position of being in the world as being a part of a polymorphous attraction field is, is sort of it makes sense to me.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was something that was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: So I think I'm going to read a little bit at the end of my first book. It was one of those moments that kind of happened magically, and I I didn't end up changing it that much. And uh, at the very end of God Says No, where the main character, he's a gay man who has sort of accepted himself, or sort of begun the process of accepting himself. And uh, he has found an apartment in the complex in which his wife and child live that he's going to move into. And he's kind of literally measuring the distance you know, visually, between his apartment and theirs. The new key was very shiny, but the same shape as Annie's. I figured I'd have to get another job lickety-split in order to pay for it, but I knew I had no other choice. Holding the key to the light, I stepped into the courtyard and found my way along the path to my new place. Inside, it had one less room than Annie's, checkered linoleum instead of white on the kitchen floor, and a couple of dirty handprints on the wall. Otherwise, it was real similar. My footsteps rang out in the empty apartment as I took a look at all the rooms, thinking of good things that might happen in them. Birthday parties, Sunday mornings, Christmases. Moving back in here made me feel a little foolish. I had gone next door by traveling around the world in the wrong direction. I walked over to the living room window, took down the for rent sign, and paused to appreciate my new view. Across the courtyard on the second floor, I could see my daughter's window through the shade trees. I could look up and see her there. She could look down, and I'd be here. Nope, it didn't seem far at all.
0: And Tell me why you chose this.
1: I think endings are really difficult, generally. I don't think I've ever really ended a short story in a way that I felt was completely satisfactory. But I really, I felt like not only did I feel good about that ending, I felt like it had just kind of come down over me in a way that was that felt like a gift.
0: Where do you write?
1: Where do you have um any place that that i can be uninterrupted for a while i mean i i go i have an office at home but there's the internet there so i i sometimes have to avoid it if i want to generate fiction kind of writing and then there's a couple of other space there's like an office space a uh, conference room space in my apartment building that sometimes it's becoming too popular but i've i've gone there i haven't you know i'm a, also a visual artist sometimes so uh I've, I have a studio I rent, and I use that. I'll go anywhere, anywhere quiet, where I won't be interrupted. It kind of doesn't matter.
0: And what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I wish I had that problem, gosh, to get away from writing. Do you mean my own or other people's?
0: <laughs> <laughs> more like your own, but you don't have to get away. It's okay.
1: Um, I wish I could get toward it more often, Is really, at the moment. I, I'm feeling like I'm just not, I'm not doing enough of it. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess I go to my life to get away from writing. And my life is uh, always obliging. I mean, it seems a lot of the time like one's life is a, a giant conspiracy to keep you from writing.
0: And um, who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Uh, my best friend, de MacLow, who is a, a very well-read person, who reads very quickly? She can usually tell me whether or not what I've written is even a book <laughs> I, I just kind just kind of checking in with
0: her it's like is this is this a book this thing that i wrote is not is that a book? How have you dealt with rejection?
1: you mean in terms of literary rejection or what what are we talking about here?
0: Anything you interpret it I mean I was thinking <laughs> about literary rejection, but you know whatever
1: i'll think of the 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 framework in which i'm most frequently rejected which is like uh, applications for things and what i do is i try to forget that i've applied for things i apply i find things uh i apply for them i put them in a file that i refer to as the job dump because i was on the job market for quite a while um and I just try to forget that I've applied for them. I mean, there are some that i it, it's hard to apply for because, uh, hard to not apply for them, but hard to um, forget about because, you know, you have some attachment to them. Like, it's like, oh, this would be really great if I could get this. But I try to put them away and then just completely forget that I've done it. And then if, it, if I get it, I'm like, wow, what is that? If I don't, I often don't even remember that I didn't. And that has worked pretty well.
0: And what is your favorite word? I think it's
1: it's actually an adverb, which is weird, because I I consider adverbs the cannon fodder of revision. You know, um, it's the the easiest kind of word. But I think in in writing nonfiction, especially, I tend to use the word ostensibly because it does a lot of work to sort of destabilize. I want to say a power structure, but it's like sort of destabilizes uh, the perception of the truth that you're putting
0: forth. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was James Hanahan, author of the novel Delicious Foods, which just won a Penn Faulkner Award for fiction. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.